I want to invite you this morning to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 23. We're going to look at the end of chapter 23 through chapter 24. Acts, starting with chapter 23. verse 32 through chapter 24 the end of the chapter when you've got it say amen Amen. if you're still looking say amen Amen. (laughs) alright sounded a little bit louder I'll give you a little more time If you just said amen, just to say amen. Say amen. Amen. (laughs) All right. That's helpful. Acts chapter 23. You can find it maybe on a a phone, perhaps. Uh, Paper Bible is always recommended because there are fewer distractions. You can't find Facebook in a paper Bible. Just a little word of uh, encouragement from somebody who's too easily distracted on my phone. But whatever works for you, Acts chapter 23, starting with verse 32. And I'm going to ask you to stand as I read God's Word this morning. It reads, And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with them. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he had learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem in worship, to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing that everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, 
that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else, let these men themselves say what wrongdoings they have found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of dead, the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ, Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get, in, get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. I want to speak to you this morning on this passage under the title, Courageous Proclamation. Please pray with me as we ask God for His help. Father, we do ask You that You would help us this morning as we study this text. Speak through me as Your servant. I pray that I would communicate Your Word, not simply my own ideas. I pray that You would open our hearts and minds and ears to the truth of this text and apply it to our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Yesterday, my family and I watched a movie called 1917. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's about two British soldiers who were sent from one British camp to another British camp with a life or death message. The phone lines having been cut by the German army, the first camp needed to tell the second camp that if they go forward with their plans, if they continue on their path, that they are walking into a German trap and that they must change their plans. So the commander hands these two soldiers this important message, and they now must cross some of the most dangerous terrain in order to deliver this message to the other commander of the other troops. The likelihood of them losing their lives in the next day is great, but it doesn't matter. Because 1,600 other lives are at stake in receiving this 
message. If the message is not obeyed, if it's not heeded, if the commander doesn't, refuses to hear what these soldiers have to say, then they will die. The risk is great, but it doesn't matter. They go forward. It's one of the greatest stories I've seen lately on courageous proclamation. But there is another story on courageous proclamation that is even greater. It's the story of you and I. It's the story of pastors and missionaries for the last 2,000 years. It's the story of moms and dads. It's the story of co-workers and friends and fellow students and children who, in the face of risk, in the face of rejection, seek to faithfully deliver a message of hope that Christ has died for sinners. And that all who turn from their sin can find hope in this message and forgiveness of God for their sin. The question I have for you this morning as we study this text is simply this. Do you have the courage to take this message to the world? There is risk involved. The message may be rejected. As a matter of fact, you may be rejected simply for delivering the message. You may lose friends. You may be even persecuted. But will you seek to faithfully deliver the Christian message? And courage is needed. Why? It's because the accusations will come. As we pick up chapter 24 here in Acts, what we see is the accusations come. They continue to come, and they continue to pile up against the Apostle Paul. As you might remember, Paul is sitting in prison. He has been falsely accused for desecrating the temple, which he didn't do. He's been falsely accused of stirring up riots, which he didn't do. He's now sitting in prison in a town called Caesarea, awaiting to, uh, a hearing before the Roman governor, whose name is Felix. There, a letter has been sent for Felix, and on verse 34, we read on reading the letter, Felix read the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And so he sits there in Herod's Praetorium, chapter 24, verse 1. You see it says, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some of the elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. Now, question, what took them five days to get from Jerusalem shortly, a uh, 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 one-day journey up north to Caesarea. Well, they were looking for the best prosecutor. And they found a guy whose name is Tertullus. All we know about Tertullus historically is recorded right here. We can assume that he was a Greek-cultured Jew, uh, a Hellenistic Jew as they call him, uh, based on his name. He has a Greek name. Uh, he, his speech in verses 2 through 8 follow a very ordinary and very uh, skilled, um, very educated sort of flow that the best of the orators in Rome would have used. 
Uh, it begins with flattery. He says, I'm not going to be before you long. You can, follow, you can find example after example after example in Roman uh, presentations that follow this kind of oratory. The, my point is simply this. He was trained. He knew what he was doing. Uh, he, he knew the kind of accusation that he needs to bring against Paul in order to get a death sentence. And so they find the guy that's going to best uh, uh, prosecute Paul. And he begins in verse 2, if you see it says, since though uh, through you we enjoy much peace, flattery. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Well, Felix, who is Felix? This is indeed flattery. Because Felix was known to be a cruel leader. His cruelty, however, was played out under the banner of what was called Pax Romana. If you remember back to middle school, Pax Romana, what was it? It was this idea that uh, Rome uh, was spreading peace. And they called it the Peace of Rome, or Pax Romana. And ironically, the Peace of Rome was, was spread through what? It was spread through violence. And so, through Felix, there's peace. Well, what does that mean? It means through Felix's violence, Rome is squashing any hint of an uprising. The historian Josephus tells us about Felix that he put an end to the zealot uprisings. During this time, sort of the backdrop for this was for years leading up to this, there was this group of uh, people called the zealots, and they would violently rise up uh, as Jews against Rome. And Felix was known to violently resist the zealots and put a stop to it, squashing their resistance. He was known to be greedy. He was known to often be looking for bribes. As we see, I'm getting ahead of myself, but as we see in the text, he's willing to release Paul from prison. He's looking for a bribe. He wants money from Paul. And I think Paul could probably get the money from his followers, but Paul refuses to give him a dime. We'll talk about that. He's, he's known to be a, a, a swindler. He's known to put a violent stop to any insurrection. Felix was born a Roman slave and was made governor by the emperor himself. And the entire administration of Felix is one of power plays, it's one of violence, and it's one of Felix protecting himself. The historian, the Roman historian Tacitus says that Felix was a man with a mercenary soul. He goes on to say that Felix had committed every act of extortion possible. He was so bad that after about two years here, Nero got tired of him. Like he was too bad for Nero. And he removed him and he was going to kill him, but uh, Felix's brother sort of saved his neck. My point is, Paul is standing before a cruel, greedy, violent individual with the best prosecution that the Jews could find. The prosecution strategy was to present Paul as an insurrectionist. Because if they can show, him, show Felix that he's an insurrectionist, well, he's going to suffer the fate of every insurrectionist under Felix's reign. That is death. 
In verse 5, Paul is called a plague, or in our COVID-19 era, we might call him a virus. He is spreading through all of the world his sickness, and it is a plague. He's called a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, to call him a ringleader of a sect of the Nazarenes is interesting. They don't just simply say he's a ringleader of the Nazarenes. Because, shoot, hey, we're cool with the Nazarenes. We love the Judaizers. They're really great people. There are versions of the Nazarenes that we really get along with. It's not that we have a problem, O Felix, against the Nazarenes. We have a problem about this man's radical version of the Nazarenes. He's, he's, he's a ringleader of this sect of Nazarenes, meaning he's, he's this minority heretical uh, movement kind of leader. And today, by the way, some of the accusations that will come against you are very similar. I don't have a problem with Christians in general. There's actually all kinds of Christians that I, I really get along with and they're fine with. It's your version of Christianity that I can't get with. You're part of this radical kind of Christianity. Uh, and they've got all kinds of names for you. They present you as part of a sect, not really a representative of Christianity. The problem is, is the accuser doesn't actually know any legit Christians. They only know Christians in name only who don't really believe the Christian message. And so those that present the Christian message are accused as being part of this minority heretical movement. Now for Paul, again, I just want to emphasize that these are very serious charges brought against him. What's his response? Well, in verse 10, he, he basically says, uh, he turns the tables and he says, look, the burden of proof is in the hands of the accuser. Gregory Kukul wrote a book on apologetics, and he presents what he calls the burden of proof as a tactic in apologetics, in defending your faith. Meaning, if somebody makes an accusation against Christianity, put the burden of proof in the one who made the accusation. Like, you don't need to try to prove their accusation a legit accusation. Let me give you an example. Somebody says, well, Christianity is not for the hood. Well, all right. Give me some evidence of that. In what way is Christianity not for all people everywhere? And, and the more you put the burden of proof back into the hands of the ones that made the accusation, the more the skilled and wise Christian can just help that person see that they're making an accusation that has no real foundation. This works, church, in every aspect of uh, our, our defending the faith. And this is exactly what Paul does. Paul is not going to take on a burden of proof for an accusation that he did not make. So he's saying, look, they're the ones accusing me, but they have, they have no evidence. Verse 12, where's the proof? They, they didn't find me. He says, look at verse 12. They didn't find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. Skip down to verse 18. He says, while I was doing this, continuing his defense, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or, or, or tumult. What he's saying is, is the burden of proof is on them. They're accusing me of desecrating the temple. They're accusing me of stirring up riots. Where is their evidence? He goes on, but some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here. 
before you and make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Now what he's saying there, I think, is he's alluding back to uh, the riot that took place in Ephesus. And he's, and he's saying, look, here's, there was this riot that happened around my ministry. And that's what they're referring to. So the people that really ought to be here are those that were part of that riot in Ephesus. I don't see them here. Why? It's because they have no evidence that I was the one stirring up anything in, Eph- in, in, in Ephesus. He's just simply putting the burden of proof back into the hands of the accuser. Accusations have come against Christianity Church for 2,000 years. And there has never been one bit of evidence that has ever proven any of our core doctrines to be false. There is an answer for every single accusation. And it has been historically played out for 2,000 years. Our faith is a faith that is tried. And it is true. Now Paul in verse 14, he does admit, however, to one thing. Which is interesting. He says, oh, I've, but uh, whoa, 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 I actually do have something to confess. And I'm sure everybody's like leaning in. What is it? He's going to say something incriminating. He says, but this I confess to you. He says, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. I be- believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. This hearing with Paul before Felix could be summed up in this way. Felix listens to the accusations. All of the accusations are false with no evidence. Paul then responds by saying they don't have evidence. And then Felix doesn't have the fortitude to make a decision. And he puts it all off. A few days later, Felix and his wife Drusilla, that's an interesting name. Everybody say Drusilla. I don't think I've ever heard anybody name their child Drusilla. Felix and Drusilla organize a private meeting with Paul in verse 24. Of chapter 24, it says, After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this is the moment I'm trying to draw this whole text up to, all right? This is where Paul's courage is ultimately put to the test. He's sitting in prison. His life is literally in the hands of one of the cruelest governors of his day. He stands before the most powerful person this side of the Mediterranean. And in verse 25 it says, He reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Four truths about the Christian message 
which lead you to this kind of courageous proclamation. Truth number one. The Christian message is communicated to the mind. It says here that Paul reasoned with Felix. The Christian message is communicated to the mind. I was speaking to a Christian friend of mine about a non-Christian acquaintance of his. And this Christian, or a non-Christian acquaintance of his is like a bad dude. Like he, he has adopted very poor uh, beliefs about Christianity and the world. He lives a life of uh, external, outward uh, wickedness. And so my Christian friend who I'm talking to is, is talking about how much he would like to see this guy become a Christian. And I asked my Christian friend, I said, hey, have you ever shared the gospel with him? Have you ever told him about how Christ has died for sinners and that he's under the judgment of God and that he must turn from his sin and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins and that that's his only hope in life and in death? And my friend kind of hung his head and, and, and let out a shameful no. And then he, he, then he said, I just don't think he would ever want to become a Christian. Do you know one of the reasons we lack courage in our evangelism, in courageous proclamation, is because we believe it's our job to make somebody want to become a Christian. Yeah. R.C. Sproul once said this, he said, you can have Christian truth in your mind, but not your heart. But it will never be in your heart if it's not first in your mind. What's, what's the point here? The point is, is that we don't speak to try to make somebody want to become a Christian. We can't do anything about the desires of their heart. When we speak, when we share the Christian message, what do we do? We speak to their mind. We reason with them. We reason with them. We, we, we uh, uh, believe that God, and we actually trust that God can take the message that's gone to the mind and connect it with their heart. And so we reason with them. We reason with the fact that they are a sinner. We reason with the fact that they need a Savior and that Jesus is a sufficient Savior. When, when Felix has this private meeting with Paul, Paul, it says, reasoned with Felix. I think Paul here is probably using all of the logic of their day. He's using the best of their philosophy. He's communicating to Felix's mind in a way that Felix, he believes, could best understand it. He's appealing to Felix. The Christian faith is a logical faith. It can be reasoned. Listen, we are to give to the Christian skeptic appeals to their mind first before their emotions. Why is it so important that Sunday after Sunday, we st I stand up here or another guy stands up here and we, we give a 45 to 60 minute sermon. Why all of this talking? Why all of this sitting and listening? It's because the Christian truth goes first to the mind 
before it gets to the emotions, before it gets to the heart. If you're here today and you're wondering, why don't I have emotions for God? Well, I look around and I see people at times joyful and happy and even shouting and singing because of these Christian truths. Why don't I have emotions for God? Why is it that when I say, Christ died for sinners, some of you immediately have a joyful reaction to that, and others don't? Listen, don't try to work up your emotions. Stimulate your mind with the truths of Christianity. It's, it, it's the new desires that God gives us through new information, through our minds, that then connects with the heart. Yes, the heart matters. You cannot have the mind minus the heart. Your emotions matter. You must love God. But in your evangelism, speak to their minds. The second truth that brings about courageous proclamation is that the Christian message is always the necessary message. It is always, no matter who you talk to, it is the necessary message for that individual. Are you with me? I can't get over Paul's courage here. Remember who he's standing before in this private meeting with Felix and Drusilla. He's standing before one of the dirtiest, greediest, violent, most violent leaders of his day. And he talks about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Really, Paul? You're going to stand before the man who could kill you, and you're going to make your message about the coming judgment? Really? Is that the wisest approach to save your life in this earth? To talk about the fact that God will raise the just and the unjust, and they will all be judged by this king. Is it really the wisest approach, Paul, to talk about how sin is going to be eternally judged by God, and that the rulers of this world who are sinful will be judged forever and that those who are in chains in this world, but trusting in Jesus Christ, will one day be freed from their chains. Really, Paul? <laughs> the Christian message can be shared with courage because it is the necessary message. You see, Paul believes that Felix needs to hear this message. The Bible says, don't fear him who can destroy the body, but fear him who can throw both body and soul into hell. Church, the worst thing, the, the, the thing that's worse, the, person, the kind of person that's worse than the Christian skeptic is the professing Christian who changes the truth to make it more appealing to the Christian skeptic. To appease the sinner. To hold back portions of what the Bible says. 
to hold back aspects of the Christian message that might not appease Felix. Uh, Let's not talk about the judgment before Felix. As a matter of fact, let's rethink judgment to make things sound more palatable for the wicked. Back to the movie 1917. What if these two soldiers who who had this message to deliver to this other camp, what if they said, you know what, I don't think the commander in this other camp is actually going to like this message. I don't think he's going to heed this message. I don't think he's going to listen to it. I think what we should do is just bring him a message of encouragement. And we should say, hey, we've risked our lives over the last day to, to come and to bring you this message that you are a winner. You are on the side of victory. Look, those things can be true. It's possible he is on the side of victory. It's possible he is a winner. That is a byproduct of the message, but that wasn't the message that they were called to deliver. We can't change the message to make it more acceptable. Why? It's because the message ultimately is not delivered. The message was, if you continue in this path, you are going to die. Yeah, the commander isn't going to like that message. It may be rejected. You may be rejected. But that is the message that is necessary. If you continue in this path, you're going to die. If you continue in this path, you are under the judgment of God. And you will be under the judgment of God for all of eternity. Felix. This is the message that Paul believed was necessary to faithfully be delivered to Felix. I'm reminded of Jude chapter 1, verse 3, where Jude says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Are you contending for the faith, the Christian message that was delivered? Are you delivering the message that was meant to be delivered? Sometimes we get close to that message, but just left of center, and ultimately miss the message altogether. John Stott once said that, that some preachers are like jugglers. One stood against the wall and the others threw knives at him. And they hit above his head, close to his ear, under his armpit, and between his fingers. They could throw within a hair's breadth, but never actually strike. I wonder if often when you are sharing the gospel with somebody who very well might reject it and might reject you, I wonder if you get close to the message but you never actually strike out of fear. Are there any soldiers who are willing to deliver the the, the message that has been once delivered, unchanged, undefiled by us? My mentor's mentor used to always say, do I have any warriors in a world of hostility? Church, we need to be courageous warriors. 
who are willing to deliver this message. Two ways that we fail to deliver the message. Number one, some Christians try to make the message more palatable, easier. It's easier to go down. Somebody once said, uh, 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 the Lamb of God is, is like this lamb chop here. It's tough to swallow. Sometimes the message is tough to swallow. But it's not our job to make it more palatable. But some try to. Some try to remove entire portions of Scripture. And this is historic. Like uh, I, I was reading about how uh, there was a quote-unquote slave Bible where slave owners would remove literal portions of Scripture to condone their behavior uh, and uh, to make their life more palatable. They removed the entire book of Philemon in which it says, receive him no longer as a slave but as a brother. In what ways do we try to make the, the truth more palatable today? Well, we, we sometimes remove entire passages on generosity where the Bible calls us to give away the world's goods to help a brother in need. No, we don't want to talk about that. Others remove entire passages on sexual ethics by saying, oh, well, you know, it's merely cultural and you can really have sex with whoever you want to have sex with. Others remove entire passages on hell saying that there's, there's no real threat to disobedience before God. Do we have the courage to look a friend, a neighbor, straight in the eye and say, your current trajectory is one of hell. If you continue on this path, you are going to be under the judgment of God for all of eternity, and Christ is your only hope in life and in death. Well, I don't think they would listen to that. Again, we're, we're trying to do what only God can do. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to them who believe, not my ability to get them to want the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we make then, out of fear, we make trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins sound more like advice than a command. Other ways that we fail to deliver the, the, the Christian message is some try to make it more pal palatable, others just change it completely. Some say, well, Christianity is not actually about forgiveness of sins, but it's about prosperity and a, a good life now and success in this earth. Some say uh, Christianity is not really about Jesus returning one day in judgment and to make all things new, but it's really about being a good citizen and loving your neighbor now. Now, sure, listen, Christianity, when lived out, sometimes does lead to prosperity. Proverbs is a whole book filled with like, hey, if you live in obedience before God, you're generally going to do better than if you live in disobedience. Uh, the Bible certainly calls us to be a good citizen and to love our neighbor. But those things are byproducts of the message. They're byproducts of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're not to deliver the byproduct, but rather the message which leads to, the, to abundant life. Why don't we? It's because we just simply lack in our trust in the power of God. Do you believe that God has the ability to convert the hardest heart? The one who's 
deeply embedded in their life of sin. Failed before God and others. Do you trust the power of God? You see your trust in God's power played out in your courageous proclamation. Or you see your lack of trust in God's power put on display as you lack courage in your proclamation. Notice Paul's response. He rejects this term, the sect. I'm not part of this sect of Nazarenes. I don't know what they're talking about. And he says, but I am part of the way. The way was the original term for Christians. It comes from John chapter uh, chapter 4, verse 6, where Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Are there many roads to God? Many people think that you can find the hope that we can only find in Christ through other roads. I wonder what roads you have been on journeying trying to find the the peace that can only come from God, trying to find a sense of significance in this world, trying to find help for your guilt and for your shame. Some people travel the road of career hoping that their significance will come with their next promotion. Other people travel the road of money hoping that the next paycheck can finally bring some security. Others travel the road of substances, believing that this next hit can mute my bad feelings. Others believe they can travel the road of sex and find happiness in another relationship. Still others believe that they can travel the road of family, trying to find in their family members what they need in a Savior. Listen, every human is created by God to honor God completely. 100% of our love and our adoration and our worship is to go to God. The problem with human beings is that we are rebels against God. Therefore, our problem is against God, not anything in this world. Therefore, nothing in this world, nothing in this world can deliver what only God can deliver. Church, your family cannot satisfy your soul. Sex will always come to an end. Money will always run out. Substances will always rob you. And careers are never going to be enough. But I've got good news. Christ's love will never end. His grace never runs out. His forgiveness is complete. His brotherhood satisfies your soul. And that's because His death robbed the powers of sin and death. How did He do it? He became like a baby in a manger. They called His name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. He lived a life of complete obedience before God as a representative of the new human race. And as the representative of a new human race, He died for the sins of His people. He was nailed 
to the cross. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And He died for your iniquity. He died for your transgressions. Your curse, the curse of God for you, for your sin, was placed onto Jesus. And three days later, the earth shook as Jesus rose from the dead, defeating the powers of sin and of death. Why is it that Paul is so courageous? It's because he believes that this is the necessary message for Felix. Why are you going to be courageous? Is because you believe that this message is absolutely necessary for every single person you know. And so we go with boldness. I'm almost done, but let me give you a third, third truth here that, uh, if understood, helps embolden us in our courageous proclamation. The third one is this. The Christian message is true, even if rejected. It's true even if rejected. The passage ends on a sobering note. I wish I could say... Man, we see here that Felix and Drusilla got saved and they become pit, became pillars in the early church. But that's not what happens. Paul courageously proclaims the gospel. And in verse 25 it says, if you look at it, it says that Felix sent Paul away. Verse 26, at the same time he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Instead of responding to the Christian message, Felix opts for greed. Instead of responding to the Christian message, Felix opts for popular opinion. And now, for two years, Paul will sit in prison because Felix doesn't have the backbone to declare that Paul is innocent. If you are rejected for faithfully sharing the message of hope, our hope of salvation in Jesus Christ, don't go home kicking yourself, saying, man, I wish I would have just left out this part. Maybe I shouldn't have said anything about sin. Maybe I shouldn't have said anything about the coming judgment. You know, we don't see Paul ever saying, "Ah, I'm sitting in prison for two years. Maybe I should have changed the message just a little bit to win Felix's favor. No, he, he doesn't because it's true. Even if it's rejected, he shared the necessary. Paul was faithful in doing what God called him to do, even though his life on this earth doesn't end well. Paul was faithful before God. And that's what matters. It's true, church, even if rejected. As you think about people in your life that you ought to be sharing the gospel with, I wonder, who is it that you need to tell the gospel to? Uh, What are some relationships that you ought to be building in your community, in your neighborhood? Who are some people that, you, that, we, that we ought to be inviting into our lives, inviting to a church service? Well, maybe they're going to reject it. Okay, maybe they will. The gospel's still true. We've done our part. You know, a lot of people in our church have used Christianity Explained. It's a six-week curriculum. 
uh, and found it to be very fruitful in evangelism. Maybe get a copy of Christianity Explained and say to a friend, say, hey, uh, you know, God has put you on my heart and I would like to walk through this study with you at six weeks and I'd love to share the Christian message with you and see if they respond. And then go through it with them and see if they respond. Maybe they reject it. Well, you were faithful. Uh, our elders were just meeting and we were just talking about one of the uh, potential strategies that we often overlook as a church and as elders, and that's in-home evangelistic groups. Not so much a, uh, something for community or discipleship internally, but a, a group in your home where maybe you, you ask another member of this church to join you and say, hey, I'm going to invite people on my block to come into my home and maybe have some dinner. And, uh, and do an evangelistic Bible study. You know, Ivan Ung, who used to be part of our church, he was converted through an in-home evangelistic group in Singapore. Um, my, my own daughter, Eden, uh, we, we did an evangelistic group in our own home, and I was doing it for outsiders, and I, I never imagined that God would use that to actually bring my daughter, Eden, to a saving understanding of Jesus Christ. We've got to be bold. We've got to be courageous. Even if we might be rejected, we need to be more faithful at sharing the gospel in creative and intentional ways. Last thing and I'm done. The Christian message is rooted in the resurrection. How is it that Paul is courageous? First, he's appealing to the mind. He knows his job. Secondly, uh, uh, Paul believes it's a necessary message. Third, Paul believes that it's true even if rejected. And fourth, the Christian message is rooted in the resurrection. Notice, Paul doesn't give Felix a dime. He could probably, knowing Felix's historic personality, he could probably buy his his way out of jail. He doesn't give Felix a dime. Why? It's because Paul doesn't have any hope in this world. But his hope is in the next. As we close, we can sort of see this, this, uh, this, this contrast. But first, Paul, I want to point out, puts his hope in the resurrection. In verse 15, Paul talks about the resurrection of the just and the unjust a second time in his defense. In verse 21, he says, it is with with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Paul has his entire Christian message built on the hope that one day our bodies are going to die in this world, but we will one day be resurrected. So Paul would rather rot for two years in prison with a hope rooted in the resurrection then have freedom and ease on this earth and lose that hope in the resurrection. So we see the contrast as it closes. Felix places his hope in this world. Paul places his hope in the next. Felix fades into the obscurity of history. And Paul, today, 2,000 years later, is living with the Lord, awaiting that day when Christ will return to earth 
and Paul's body will be raised and reconnected with his soul. And he will live forever with God, ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. Church, I just want us to let our light shine. You remember that song we used to sing as kids? Somebody's singing it. We sing this song as kids, and it's so simple and it's so true. And somehow as we get older and we become adults, we get more sophisticated. And we start to cover up our light. This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. What was the second verse? Hide it under a bushel. I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. I didn't even know what a bushel was when I was a kid. But we would go like this. I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. When you might be rejected for your faith, church, let it shine. When you don't think your friend will ever respond to the message, let it shine. Even if you are rejected, continue to let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Amen? As we go from here, let me close with this quote from Richard Baxter. He simply says this, Don't now, don't unsay with your life what you have said with your tongue. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that we can boldly let our light shine. We can courageously proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ because you have given us a particular job and a particular message that we can do. It's the necessary message. It's true even if it's rejected. And it's a message built on the hope of the resurrection. Do a work in us and let us let this message shine. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.